Welcome to Screw You, the podcast that illustrates how the judiciary will always side with big corporations because the law does not exist to serve anybody except the rich and powerful. My name is Mirilek. I am the host of this podcast. I am a law student and I am livid, right? I am perpetually angry, but today it is for a very particular reason. It is because I will be talking about how the Royal Dutch Shell Company has collaborated with a handful of African lawmakers to ravage the environment, all in the hopes of making a whole lot of money. Um, I decided to talk about this because as far as I knew at the time of researching for this episode, Shell is doing some seismic blasting on South Africa's wild coast. So, the judiciary's decision to allow this to happen, seeing as seismic blasting has devastating effects on marine life, and they know this, is particularly strange to me because it's happening right after our president attended a freaking climate meeting, right? That's like the worst, like above all else, it's the most hypocritical thing, but at the same time, it's not really surprising because like, we know, we knew this would kind of happen, but before I begin... Um, with this week's episode i want to ask a few things of this of you guys right first things first please boycott shell right unless if you have literally no other option there's no reason for you to ever step foot in the business that plans on destroying a chunk of our environment and you can also sign the oceans not well petition uh, it's an organization that is actively contesting shell's intent to do to continue doing seismic blasting in the wild coast as well as um the kzn coast so the link to those petitions will be in the description uh, there are a bunch of charities that claim to be combating this and other activities that harm the environment but this is the only one that i trust because it does not function like a mega corporation the way that most charities do so there but yeah uh, i don't know how else we can meaningfully resist shells and levers so i'll stop at that right we don't even have widespread media coverage about this i heard about this by mistake which is the worst part right i didn't hear this from the news i didn't read about this from the articles um, that i get from google i read about this because one day i was scrolling on twitter and boom i hear about shell right <sighs> so yeah um um uh, as a side note just before i get into the actual content of today's episode i want to tell you that i won't be adding a transcript of this week's episode because i did not reference properly and i don't want to be plagiarism and stuff easy because hey no so that's kind of all the prefacing that we have um yes today's episode is gonna require a lot of prefacing of like understanding what the issue is before we actually get into like the criminality of shell and our judiciaries so i'm going to start off by explaining what seismic blasting is and why it is done because i don't know i didn't know what seismic blasting was and i'm going to operate on the assumption that neither did you because it's not really like common knowledge i believe so according to the australian marine conservation society seismic blasting is the process wherein air guns fire incredibly light loud blasts of air into the water every 10 to 15 seconds these seismic waves must be loud enough to penetrate the seabed and find oil or in some instances natural gas in the mantle so if you remember um, grade 9 natural science it's that thing that's below the crust right the one where it has all the wait is it I do believe, I don't know where the minerals are, it's either they're in the crust or just, just above the mental before things start to melt, right? So, how loud 
could these sound waves possibly be in order to be able to penetrate potentially kilometers of water as well as the earth's crust which depending on how deep beneath the surface the oil is may also amount to kilometers the answer to that is 250 decibels to put it into perspective the loudest sound ever recorded was in 1883 when a volcano in the indonesian island of krakatoa exploded it clocked in at a 310 decibel right and this volcano which was roughly which was roughly 793 meters high was reduced to nothing after the um, volcanic eruption According to Medium, quote, this sound was so loud that the shock wave was recorded moving around the globe. It circled the globe not once, not twice, but three times before pattering out. 150 decibels can burst your eardrums. 200 decibels can kill you. 250 decibels are being pumped into the ocean every 10 to 15 seconds. These sound waves will go deep into the bed of the sea, after which point they will bounce back to the surface of the sea and be picked up by radio receivers. Geologists will then be able to figure out where oil is or can be found below the seabed based on how the sound waves are received. This is an important process for what is called seismic testing and seismic testing, namely the process of creating an image of the strata below the Earth's surface, is the first step in discovering oil and gas in the ocean. Seismic blasting has devastating effects on marine life, obviously. The impacts vary from direct death to damage to the animals and plant life and even changing behavior patterns of the marine life. This, in turn, not only impacts the plants and animals themselves, but coastal communities who depend on them for sustenance. As I've just mentioned, the sound made during the seismic blast is enough to kill a human being one and a quarter time. So just when you think about how frequently it is done, every 10 to 15 seconds, for the whole day, for weeks, and even months on end, and I think we can all like see how bad it would be in the long run. It's really interesting... Interesting... Oh... Inter interestingly enough, seismic blasting is illegal in the Atlantic Ocean. I don't want to think too deeply about what the implications of banning seismic ocean um, seismic blasting in that ocean only is. Oh wait, I do, and I will talk about that later. What I will say for now is look at the countries that touch the Atlantic Ocean. Right? So seismic blasting is bad in and of itself, but it is even worse in what comes after it. And that is offshore fracking. So fracking can take place in the ocean, but also on land. Um, in this section, because of the nature of what I'm talking about today, I'll be mostly talking about offshore fracking, but the information of offshore fracking and like on the ground fracking is mingled together. So I'll be talking about them interchangeably. So oil companies don't blow the seismic sound waves into the ocean for no reason. They do it to find oil. And as far as I know, offshore fracking is the only way of extracting oil in the ocean. So, however, I could 100% be wrong about this. I don't know if there are other ways of extracting oil from the ocean because Google literally refused to give me a straight answer. I said they're asking Google, how is oil extracted from a seabed? And I literally, and I was literally told, this is done by drilling a hole into the seabed. I know, but what is the name for it? So, I was very annoyed. So, I'm just going to... Um, yeah, then the only reason I even know about fracking is because of Bojack Horseman. So, anyway, Google defines fracking as the process of injecting liquid at high pressure into subterranean rocks, boreholes, etc., so as to force 
open existing fissures and extract oil or gas. People love talking about the economic advantages of fracking. We produce oil now, so that means we produce oil now, so that means our economy is boosting. It creates employment, and some American organizations and politicians say that fracking has allowed America to decrease their overall carbon emissions. This may be true, I didn't really research it, but it cannot be denied that fracking as a whole has devastating impacts on the environment and the people who exist in those environments. Amongst many other things, fracking can poison groundwater, pollutes surface water, impair wildlife landscapes, and threaten wildlife. Also, fracking can destroy marine life if the harmful chemicals used during the fracking process seep into the ocean. Furthermore, the process of clearing up plants on the seabed for fracking destroys marine plant life. One can only imagine how having a drill going into the seabed in the middle of the ocean can impact the migration and mating patterns of animals living in the sea. And lastly, because of the way fracking works, it increases the risk of earthquakes and particularly awful cases, it can result in sinkholes forming. So in the episode of Bojack Horseman that I'm talking about, like um, Mr. Peanut Butter's house literally fell inside of a hole because of the fracking process that was taking place on the land. So there are a lot of other issues tethered to fracking. I just think it's best to stop here because I don't think anyone would appreciate hearing me talk about a singular topic for 100 years. And like I said, fracking may have had a passive had a positive impact in America as it has allegedly decreased carbon emissions. But what about the continent that has the lowest carbon emissions on the planet? Second only to the one that does not have any human beings living on it permanently, obviously. Does have does fracking have an equally in quotation marks positive impact on the continent whose people are not are really not to blame for the impending climate collapse? Can fracking be expected to have anything other than devastating effect on this continent? which has been perpetually exploited for the benefit of that other part of the globe. And does it even matter what the people here think when there's a small subset of society making all of the decisions for them? Fracking began in the U.S. in 1949. Since then, a number of American states and a plethora of Western nations have banned fracking because of its devastating impact on the environment. The first African country in which oil was drilled is Nigeria, and this was in 1958. There have, may have been another country from the African continent which began drilling oil earlier, but the Google results were super murky. It was really unclear which country began oil drilling first because there's a mention of exploration for oil mixing with information about fracking and such. So it's very confusing. So oil drilling, like good old-fashioned mineral mining, has its own sets of problems. I feel like it becomes easy to overlook the negative impact mining has on the environment because we are so used to it and it seems as if it bene- its benefits outweigh setbacks, but it is still awful. According to Wikipedia, every teacher's favorite website, I quote, Royal Dutch Shell PLC, commonly known as Shell, is an Anglo-Dutch multinational oil and gas company headquartered in The Hague in the Netherlands and incorporated into the United Kingdom as a public limited company. As of 2020, according to Statista.com, it had a revenue of 180,54 billion USD and it had 87,000 employees, most of whom lived in Asia. Shell, the oil company, was officially founded in 1907 in London by the Samuels family. The company was initially involved in the sale of seashells in the late 19th century. These seashells were imported from the Far East. 
When you take into consideration the fact that most trades between the West Mold and the East were unequal and in favor of the former, then I don't think that it would be unfair of me to assume that this specific trade would have been unequal and unfair. So I want you guys to put a pin on this, by the way. The fact that Shell most probably had an unequal trading relationship with the East Asia even before it became a major oil company. The reason why the Shell company pivoted from the sale of seashells to that of oil, a very sharp shift if I do say so myself, was because the sons of Marcus Samuels, the founder of Seashell Shell, <laughs> um, yeah, theirs was the first ship to transport kerosene to Asia in 1892. The company experienced a great deal of expansion in the post-war years. Shell's website says, quote, In 1947, the first commercially viable offshore well was drilled in the Gulf of Mexico, and within eight years, the company had over 300 such wells. New discoveries were also made in Borneo and the Niger Delta, and commercial production of oil in Nigeria began in 1958. So, the first people to, shell, to drill oil in Nigeria were Shell. However, it is not made clear if Shell played any hand in these discoveries or the process of drilling the first oil wells in the Gulf of Mexico in particular. But even as I say this, it is 100% a fact that they have played a hand in the goings-on of these oil rigs in the years after their discoveries. In the 1960s, Shell began strengthening its presence in the Middle East. An occurrence which coincidentally coincides with the instabilities which began blossoming in that region in the same time period. An occurrence which I will elaborate on later in this episode. What I want to talk about first is Charles' relationship, relationship with the African continent. In 1936, the Royal Dutch Shell Group founded Shell D'Arki, the first Shell company in Nigeria. Just two years later, it received an exploration license that enabled them to search for oil in all of Nigeria. They would successfully drill oil for the first time in 1956 in Oloibiri. Oloibiri is a small community in Ogbia, LGA, located in Bayelsa State in the eastern Nigeria Delta region of Nigeria. The inhabitants of Oloibiri are mainly fishermen and farmers, and the largest tribe is the Ijaws. Although they make up the majority in Oloibiri, they are a minority tribe in the rest of Nigeria. When the people from Shell had initially come in search for oil, the inhabitants of Oloibiri had just assumed that they were looking for palm oil. According to an account provided by the BBC, the people in Oloibiri had been elated when the Europeans showed them the black oil they had discovered. These people would feel no such joy as Shell ravaged the community in the years to come and left them poorer and way more desolate after they had sucked up the last bit of oil in Oloibiri than when they had first arrived. arrived. I mentioned earlier that Oloibiri consisted mainly out of fishermen and farmers. You will see this is a common trend as we continue talking about how the people were found when Shell came, like before Shell began, began drilling for oil and even afterwards, the people identify as fishermen, fishermen and farmers, which means that they are sustained by the environment in which they live. But So, back to Oloibiri. Because of Shell's actions in this remote area, quote, you see fish floating on the surface of the water, something they didn't know before, and they find it difficult to make a catch that will be enough for their families for even a day. Although Oloibiri is the first place that Shell discovered oil in this region, it is not because of Oloibiri that the rest of the world became aware of Shell's atrocities in Nigeria. It is because of Ogoni. The Ogonis are a people in the rivers south 
East Senatorial District of River State in the Nigeria Delta region of southern Nigeria. They number just over 2 million and live in a 1,050 square kilometer homeland, which they also refer to as Ogoniland. Because of shells operations in this region, the water is undrinkable, and the people in the region have to put up posters to prevent people from fishing in the rivers that contain shells runoff. In 1956, Four years before Nigerian independence, Royal Dutch Shell, in collaboration with the British government, found a commercially viable oil field on the Nigeria Delta and began oil production in 1958. In, the, in a 15-year period from 1976 to 1991, there were reportedly 2,976 oil spills of about 2.1 million barrels of oil in Ogoniland. According to the Africa report, independent tests have found dangerous levels of carbon monoxide and nitrogen dioxide in the atmosphere there. A person who was interviewed by the Africa report has to drink a sachet of phenol. According to Tablet Wise, a phenol tablet is used for asthma, breathing, breathing difficulties, cold or allergies, shortness of breath, interruption of breathing in newborns, wheezing, chest tightness, nasal swelling, and other conditions. There are two things I found interesting upon researching further for this specific tablet. Firstly, from what I could deduce from the website, feral is mostly used almost exclusively actually in Nigeria and Brazil. I say this because it only showed up in connection with those two countries, but I may be wrong, obviously. And secondly, here are the after effects of using feral. Some of these are rare, but the website does not indicate which of these reactions are rare, are rare and which are more common. So these are dehydration, inability to sleep, trembling or shaking, nervousness, anxiety, lightheadedness, fainting, restlessness, irritability, chest pain or discomfort, increased urine volume, irregular heartbeat, persistent vomiting, stomach upset, insomnia, stomach pain, diarrhea, dizziness, pounding or rapid pulse, headache, fits, nausea, sudden death, low blood pressure, cardiac arrhythmias, loss of appetite, abnormally low blood pressure, dry mouth, abnormal heartbeat, and uncontrollable shaking. The person who had to drink the fennel said that he drank it every time he came from the oil spill site, which, which is daily. I'm going to quote directly from the Africa report for the next bit, just a big chunk of quote. So, yes. The Nigeria Bureau of Statistics, NBS, states that crude oil export amount for 3.7 trillion naira or 70.87% of total export in the third quarter of 2019, making it the most exported product in Nigeria, while its contribution to the gross domestic product was 9,77%. But the oil producing communities are the ones suffering from these major exports. Shell has not pumped oil from its swells in Ogoni since 1993, after Ogoni activists led protests against the oil company for destroying the environment effectively and this effectively effectively halted its operations. But its pipelines still carry crude oil, some 150,000 barrels daily through the region to its export terminal at Bonny Island on the coast. The pipelines are reportedly aging, aging and poorly maintained, says the human rights organization Amnesty International. The poor state of the pipeline have led to multiple spills as a result of internal pressure thereby making them prone to spilling thousands of barrels of crude oil. In a 2015 report, Amnesty International says some 352,000 barrels of crude oil were spilled between 2007 to 2014 from the Bomu Manifold, a shell faculty at Kegbare Dere, located in Gogana, 
uh, local government area of River State. But the major oil spill occurred on 12 April 2009 when fire from the Bo Bomu manifold burned for 36 hours and spread to the neighboring Goy and Mogo communities, causing damage that destroyed people's livelihoods. During the cold night, and now to quote uh, a witness is like a person who lived through this um, exper the experience. So during that cold night in 2009, 35-year-old Dogba Dorba Boriomo, I'm sorry if I, I know I pronounced that very badly, I'm sorry, uh, kissed her child, her children and husband goodnight, turned off the light and went to sleep. Neither she nor the thousands of people at Kedere knew the following event would change their lives forever. The first thing she woke up to was immense heat from the explosion. She says, it was as if our house had been set on fire. Later came the smell of crude oil. It was so bad we could not breathe, breathe well for the first few months. The oil spills had a devastating impact on the forests and fisheries that the local people depend on for their food and livelihood. Many Kedere residents grew up near Kidaro Creek where they fish. Fishing was one trade they excelled at, but since the spill, the catch is now poor as the creek remains contaminated with crude oil while the stench of benzene hangs in the air. I'm done quoting now. To point out the complacency of the judiciary in all of this, I will quote from Fair Planet. Quote, in February of 2018, a British court dismissed an appeal in the case that the Shell Petroleum Development Company should be tried for oil spills in the United Kingdom rather than in Nigeria, where the spillages occurred. Shell has always insisted that most of the spills were caused by saboteurs. Yet, Amnesty International claims its research researchers have found at least 89 spills which might have been deliberately mislabeled as theft or sabotage. The rights group indicated that of 89 spills, 46 are from Shell and the remainder are from Eni, the Italian giant currently facing similar prosecution in Milan. Close quote. The fact that the Ogonis have been denied of a good quality of life in that there is an unimaginable amount of oil pollution in the area. It is so bad that it would take a minimum of 30 years to clean it all up and this poses so many threats to food security and the general health of the people that i feel like i cannot properly properly articulate how awful the oil pollution is over there and this is all because of shell and this would be bad enough alone right however that is not where shell's atrocities end truly we are only scratching the surface in order to understand just a semblance this is not even the full depth just a taste of um, this company's criminality, we have to talk about the Ogoni 9, right? I'm going to start saying names. I will probably mispronounce them. I am so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes. So, the members of the Ogoni 9 were outspoken author, author and playwright Ken Saro Wiwa, Saturday Dobie, Nordu Iawo, Daniel Gbukwo, Paul Levera, Felix Noate, Birabor, Bera, Barinem, Kyobel, and John Kbuine. I tried my best. Like, I was thinking, when I was busy saying the R's differently, I was thinking about how I've heard Nigerians pronounce their R's, and I was trying to say it that way. So, if I'm, I said it wrong, I'm so sorry. So, to quote from DW.com, on January 4, 1993, Mossop organized a peaceful protest attended by nearly 
300,000 Ogoni people in the River State, Nigeria. They not only decried the environmental destruction of their land caused by the Shell Patrimonial Development Company of Nigeria, but they also expressed the Ogoni people's right to self-determination, including greater control over the exploitation of oil found in the lands. So this was obviously a, a um, this revolt, this protest was uh, posed a problem for both the new military regime of Sani Abacha as well as Shell's uh, profits that they could be found in Nigeria. So, it should come as no surprise that shortly afterwards, the Nigerian military occupied the territory. For more than two years, under the dictatorial military, dictatorial military rule of General Sani Abacha, the protest campaign went on. Finally, Sorowiwa and his eight colleagues succeeded in getting support both at home and internationally. Close quote. Uh, furthermore, Sani General Abacha, the Nigerian military head of state, detained Sarawiwa for a year. He had Sarawiwa, along with the other eight, the other eight, hanged on the 10th of November 1995. This was after they had been tried in the military tribunal where they were falsely accused of murdering four people. According to Fair Planet, quote, Shaw has been repeatedly accused of colluding with the Nigerian government to deal with the Ogoni situation. Fingers have also been pointed at Shaw for the role they played behind closed doors in the trial that sentenced Saro Iwa to death by a legal process wildly disparaged as a kangaroo court. It led to the expulsion of Nigeria from the Commonwealth, but the company has consistently denied these claims. Nonetheless, it is widely believed that the protesters were merely collateral damage in Shaw's petroleum operations in the Nigeria Delta. DW org claims that some witnesses in the case admitted to being bribed by the daring government and all promised jobs in Shell. But even as I mentioned all the atrocities that Shell is responsible for committing in on Ogoniland and Oloibiri, it is important to acknowledge the fact that these are not the only regions in Nigeria that were negatively infected, affected by Shell's actions. For example, Kidaro Creek has tried every possible avenue in its search for justice, including local, national, and international courts and political institutions, but they have not gotten any justice. This is because, as local government scientist Irax Koba says, Kidaro Creek was not mentioned in the original report and has thus been ignored by the oil company. The inhabitants of Kidere are still awaiting a 37.8 million USD compensation that was given to them by a Nigerian court in 2015. Shell has appealed this judgment. The 100-year-old chief of Kidere, Chief Sandek Bai, is so disillusioned by this state of affairs that he said, quote, The only reason Shell is appealing is they know we will all die eventually. So, they are waiting for us all to die. He went on to say, We do not do... We did not do anything to Shell, yet they have destroyed our inheritance. If I die now, what is the relevance of the court? Who will get the money? The whole of the area is contaminated. Is this how we must live and survive in this world? Chief's, Chief Saint Emma P. of uh, Bodo Village said something that also almost made me cry. So after showing the interviewer from Friends of the Earth International the kilometers upon kilometers of oil that used to house lions and elephants and the body of pure oil that used to have a wide array of fish, he said, quote, We are refugees in our community. Hungry is our name. We can't eat what we plant. We don't have a future. Our children die young. 
babies are premature people die early all of this because of the royal dutch shell to quote from friends of the earth international in 2012 the bodo the bodo um community filed a case in the united kingdom where shell is incorporated after years of negotiating, the company settled in 2015 for 83.4 million US dollars, a whopping 82% short of their original demand of 454.9 million US dollars. Nonetheless, this is one of the largest such compensation payments to impact uh, unprotected communities in Africa, and it is hoped that it will open the door to additional claims. Under the 2015 UK settlement, Shell was responsible for cleaning up this area. But Shell sought a court order to prevent community members from reviving the litigation if the cleanup is not carried out satisfactorily. Shell's attempt to silence the community was shut down in the UK court in 2018. Close quote. Upon researching where this case is at the moment, I found no real indication of where the case is at the moment. I saw some fucking annoying transcript from a bunch of NGOs. If you know me in real life or my personal social media pages, then you know that I trust NGOs as much as I trust the government. So these um, NGOs were praising their own efforts in Bondoland, but said nothing about where the case is. So they kept talking about how they helped this and this and this person, but I'm not seeing where the compensation fund is at the moment. And they did not indicate that the Bondo people have been emancipated in any way. As such, and until proven otherwise, I believe that Shell will just not pay these people this fraction of the money that they owe them. And it is so infuriating, right? So, the final community I want to refer to is the Gwe community. In 2008, Chief Bariza Dor, along with three other Nigerian farmers, took Shell to court in the Netherlands with the assistance of um, Miel Defe, Friends of the Earth, um, Netherlands. To quote again from that Friends of the Earth article, international article, in 2013, Shaw was convicted for damages in Ikot Ada Udo, but not in Goy. Following the death of his father, Eric Dor took his father's place in the appeal procedure. In 2015, Friends of the Earth Netherlands discovered through documents released in a UK court case that Shaw had lied in court. The company's international documents uh, internal documents stated that the pipeline in Goy was poorly maintained and inadequately monitored. Today, the lawsuit in the Netherlands is ongoing, with Shell blocking justice every stop of the way, every step of the way. Close quote. Shell.com.ng, the official Nigerian site for the Royal Dutch Shell Company, does not mention any of this. Does not mention any of the things that Shell has done in Nigeria that is negative. Shell.com, the official site for the Royal Dutch Company, only says with with regards to this whole like all of the things that we have found out today about what Shell has done as Nigeria, which is not everything, by the way, there's still so much that I just have not found in my research. But with regards to everything that I've said today, all they only say, quote, environmental concerns were raised in relation to Shell's plans to dispose of the brand platforms in North Sea storage platforms, as well as over Shell's presence and activities in Nigeria. Shell has since strived to work as closely as possible with both local governments and communities, close quote. They say this under a category on the website that they called growing and facing challenges. <sighs> now, it may be hard to comprehend the fact that Shell is responsible for a lot of other terrible things in the African continent, but that would be completely false, right? 
On the 14th of December 2021, the Daily Maverick reported that Chile had begun with its seismic blasting off the wild coast, despite protests from numerous South Africans. This has been done with both the blessing of the executive uh, Eastern Cape Executive Council as well as the courts. To quote the Daily Maverick, Mineral Resources and Energy Minister Gwede Mantashe lambasted those who protested against the seismic survey for oppressing economic development. I won't talk about the He called environmental activism apartheid and colonism of a special type. I also want to commend Daily Maverick because from what I can tell, they seem to be the only major South African news source that is consistently reporting about this. It becomes easy to forget this is happening when you don't live near the coast and you do not hear about any of the stuff from the news. So thank you to Daily Maverick in this regard. Oceans.oil took child to court, right? However, their case was unsuccessful because Makanda High Court acting judge Avinash Govindji uh, dismissed the application with cost. So, the environmental groups which brought the case in the public interest must pay Shell's legal fees. Law student factoid, as far as I know, if an organization brings a case before the courts in the interest of the public, they should not be made to pay any fees, except in very, like in very specific circumstances. In my opinion, these certain circumstances were not applicable in this case because a lot of people were interested in this case. So it is in the interest of the public and it does affect the public as well. Like we know from what we have read, seismic blasting negatively impacts marine life. So imagine all the fishermen who live on the coast, how it will impact their mode of sustaining themselves. But in any case, according to Business Life, quote, Govindji gave a brief nod to growing global concerns about the environment, but was more anxious to protect Charles' contractual obligations and expenditure incurred, and unconvinced by what he describes as paucity of information on the likely environmental harm. That is, he said that it, there's no real indication that Charles' seismic blasting will negatively impact the environment. Tracy Davis, the journalist reporting on this matter, went on to say, but even if the judge were right on this point, there's an established legal principle he failed to consider. The precautionary rule holds that a risk-averse and cautious approach must be applied. In cases of uncertainty, it means projects should not go ahead, according to the Constitutional Court in the fuel retailer's case, where due to unavailable scientific knowledge, there is uncertainty as as to the future impact of the proposed development. So even if Govindji is like, there is no proof that it will have a negative impact. The mere fact that they don't know what will happen means that it just should not happen. That's what the president that was said in our Constitutional Court. But as I've stated many, many moons ago, people claim that Shell's endeavors will positively impact South Africa's GDP and create jobs and boost the economy. But as Davis has noted, the same was said for Mozambique, and this has proven to be the complete opposite. To quote from my article, the International Monetary Fund predicted in 2016 that, assuming production and export of Mozambican um, liquefied natural gas started in 2021, the average rural GDP growth between 2021 and 2025 would reach 24%. Project proponents claimed gas would catapult Mozambique to a middle-income country. But as of, 20, as of December 2021, report by independent think tank E3G notes, Mozambicans are now 
on average poorer than they were a decade ago. Revenues from gas are predicted to be half of what the energy minister claim, if they materialize at all. The focus on gas has diverted attention and resources from investment in renewable energy, for which Mozambique has some of the highest potential in the world. And you want to know who is involved in the natural gas extraction in Mozambique? Shell. It, along with Exxon Bank, ExxonMobil and BP have even poured billions of dollars into gas project in Cabo Delgado, even though this region is currently at war because of the very same natural gas. I want to talk very briefly about Shell's relationship with the Middle East by just referencing a very particular region in the Middle East. So, um, to talk about this, I will talk. I will um, talk about an article from 2007 from the World Socialist website. Yes, the article is old, but I want to talk about it because it brings something to the forefront, which I hope you will notice as I continue talking. In Royal Dutch Shell and the Struggle for Iraqi Oil, Jorg Victor illustrates how Shell, in collaboration with the British and Dutch government, exploited war and general political instability in Iraq to weasel its way back into the Middle Eastern oil. Please take note of the following. I'm not saying that Shell caused the war. That would be a claim that I have not made and I've not found any research to back up. So that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so according to Jog, quote, the Royal Dutch Shell was active in Iraq in the 1920s, profiting from the exploitation of Iraqi oil for approximately five decades. Only the nationalization of oil of the oil industry in 1972 by the Hussein Reim terminated this very lucrative business for Shell. It was only in 1997 when Shell bought a 40% of a contract signed by BHP Billiton, an Australian oil company, that Shell found a way back into the Iraq's uh, oil market. This contract was never implemented though because of economic sanctions. Furthermore, the Iraq oil, which began in the March of 2013, halted Shell's Middle East manager Wolfgang Straubel's attempt to directly negotiate with the Iraqi oil market. Um... When it was finally possible for Shell to find footing in the Middle East once more, the British and Dutch lobbying networks helped the company to get a piece of the Iraqi oil. To quote Jog once more, the Dutch government accommodated the interests of the country's largest transnational corporation by participating military in the US-led wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Something that Jog said, which I found extremely profound, was this. The close fusion of big businesses and politics is a fundamental characteristic of capitalism. Despite their global activities, the transnational corporations, including the oil giants, are dependent on the cooperation of governments, which increasingly become the likes of the largest and most powerful companies. This mutual support is expressed through an ever closer exchange of personnel between the two. Politicians easily enter into the world of big business. Managers move into politics. Um... To quote a big chunk of this article, as well as in co- cooperating with the British and Dutch government, Shell uses a network of lobbying organizations through which the cooperation acts, to some extent, also directly alongside its competitors. For example, these organizations include the U.S. Council for International Business, established in 1945, one of the largest American lobbying organizations, as well as the European Roundtable of Industrialists, the most influential lo- lobby organization in Europe. The spearhead of Shell's lobbying in the U.S.-based International Taxation and Investment Center, ITIC, 
This think tank is financed by Shell and six other oil corporations, and since June 2003 has developed the strategy for plundering Iraq's oil wealth. The central plank of the strategy is a study prepared by ITIC in cooperation with the British government and the oil companies involved. Not surprisingly, the study comes to the conclusion that the reconstruction of Iraqi oil industry requires direct investment by major oil corporations. To secure such foreign investment, so-called production sharing agreements, PSAs, are to be created, handing over large portions of Iraq's natural wealth to the corporations involved. In February 2007, the Iraqi cabinet of Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki attempted to uh, accept the draft legislation and submitted it to the parliament. If parliament passes the legislation, nothing stands in the way of the oil giants exploiting Iraq's, um, Iraq's resources since the law sets out the necessary PSAs. More than 60% of the approximately 80 oil fields already developed are to be handed over exclusively to the oil corporations for up to 30 years. In addition, they will gain right to all unexplored fields. After paying for all the running costs out of the revenues, 20% of the profits are guaranteed to the oil companies. Some calculate that in reality, up to 70% of the profits will flow to the oil multinationals. I do not have I do not have the mental bandwidth to go through upwards of ten years worth of articles and try to decoding the oil company jargon in order to figure out what became of Shell's endeavors in their since. This is mostly because most information about Shell and the Middle East is clogged by the announcement that Shell has decided to leave the Middle East, and also because I believe that these mega corporations find a way of disappearing any particularly incriminating information about themselves, and I simply do not feel like looking because. That is why, no, I'm fine. But anyway, although Shell has decided to leave the Middle Eastern oil sectors, they are still keeping their natural gas interest in a handful of uh, Middle Eastern countries, including Qatar, Oman, Egypt, and Iraq. The next thing that I want to talk about is the one that I told you about, like putting a pin on the unequal trading relationships that would have inevitably risen from the seashell shells. Um, trading with uh, that far east shell things as well as like the way that they interact with the middle east and obviously with nigeria and obviously now i'm kind of remixing so take everything that i'm saying with a grain of salt but what i thought of while i was reading about that just a common thread is this new imperialism so it's this thing where Shell takes and takes and takes and takes from these different, um, usually countries in the global south, and destroys, leaves behind destruction and dissolution. Is it the word dissolution? Like, like people are left desolate, desolate, and it benefits from the exploitation of these people, both the people and their own land. And what really captured this feeling for me is that quote that I mentioned where like um, Nigeria exports all of this money and I mean all of this oil and it amounts for so much of the GDP and so much of the overall exports of the country. And yet the people living in the areas where oil is found are the ones who face the brunt of this development, who, who do not see the fruits of all of this oil being found where they live and what i found very interesting as well is that thing where like 
uh, in the very beginning of the episode, I mentioned that uh, most of the workforce of Shell is found in Asia. And if you know a lot about Asia, you know that in many Asian countries, the labor laws are extremely inhumane, right? I don't, I didn't focus on that very much because I ended up just focusing mostly on Nigeria. But I think we all know very well how bad the labor laws can be in the Asian continent. So when you think about how the labor force is concentrated in Asia, then it becomes highly apparent that it's exploitative in that regard as well. Sure, we can all argue that it's not Shell who's giving people um, unlivable wages. It's not Shell who's creating... Okay, but it is in many ways. But it's not Shell who is responsible for keeping people in check with regards to the workplace when it's an inhumane workplace. But they're exploiting these countries whose laws do not protect the people. Not to say that laws ever protect people as it's made apparent, but whose laws are particularly exploitative. So they are capitalizing on the fact that the countries don't protect their people through laws and they're using this labor. And this is made evident, obviously, in that that shift, you know, the way that um, all of these multinational corporations are moving away from western nations and nations and moving to the african continent and moving to um asia and i think moving to latin america as well and it's just a very interesting thing it's imperialist in the sense that it's the it's this imposition of what is coined development but the development is not made apparent in the area where these meaningful valuable resources are being found the development is found in the western nation from which the corporation originates so yes when i started researching for this podcast episode i don't expect to find i don't expect to find out this much stuff and even as i say like i do not expect to find out this much stuff i do realize that i didn't really say that much like it's not reading now when i was writing the script it felt like a lot i just felt very overwhelmed maybe it was because i was doing this at three out like in the morning but also because it was just so hard to comprehend that Joe has done this much and this is just the stuff that is reported this is just the stuff that appears when i search on google and there's this thing that i found out about research is that google doesn't even show you everything and I feel like it should seem like common knowledge, but Google is like the tip of the iceberg. There's so much information that remains hidden that we will never find out about simply because it's not easily accessible. It's behind paywalls. It's in the darker side of the web. <laughs> and it's it's hidden. It's removed. It's been disappeared. So when I started this episode, like when I sat down and I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about Shell. I thought I would just find out information about Shell's plans in South Africa, about their thing with seismic blasting. But by some miracle, I decided to not just focus on my own country, but as many African countries as I could. And in the end, the episode became more about Nigeria than it did about South Africa. And it, it, and like, <sighs> like while I was reading the articles on my childhood to Nigeria, and in Nigeria, I had that constant hot feeling in my throat that you get before you start crying, right? I didn't cry, but I, I was just so sad just to hear 
not really here to read all of these like there were so many like if you look at the pictures if you take a look like just google okoni land and it's so incredibly depressing and as i was reading i couldn't find it in me to be surprised right i was angry about how the judiciary along with the government officials helped child destroy these people's lives above all else without repercussions but i was not surprised i was just angry and though like i understand that it's like like you don't expect anything else but you still feel this deep feeling of shock that wow this is this is what this 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 it's and to think like how many other villages like so many of the villages that were involved in like that I was searching about you you can't even find it when you google them like if you google bondo right bondo the one of the villages that i mentioned you'll see a bondo in one of these european countries if you search bondo village yes it'll show up yes but it's the one article you don't they don't like you don't like they're not even on a google search so how will you find out that this is the stuff that's happening unless if it's 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 just the wonder waking power of corporations and lawmakers it's just and it's so interesting to watch to not to watch but it's it's this like it's it's a it's a manic manically like saddening sensation to just watch how the government corporations lawmakers and the judiciary will work in tandem to just destroy lives of everyday people all the people like people who they claim to work in the whose interest they claim to work for and i want to emphasize again that this is not everything that child has done this is just the stuff that i've been able to find and it's it's depressing <laughs> above all it's <laughs> it's it's something else so yeah that's the end of the episode um i i please sign the petition for oceans not well please boycott shell like personally my family we have not gone to shell in over five years i don't it wasn't even intentional at first like i just like i just had a physical aversion to shell because i just didn't like their um shop like that shop they have inside i didn't like it but no that's not why we stopped <laughs> we didn't stop going there just in my in the area where i live there are very few shops it's mostly bp and cecil so don't don't you shall and sign the petition <laughs> when you sit down and think about it too deeply you end up feeling so powerless and one it yeah i don't even know what else to say uh please follow me on instagram i don't really post much but check it out thank you bye bye